Beards, Business, and Balls, presented by House Enterprise and brought to you by Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to listen to Beards, Business, and Balls and thousands of other podcasts today. I'm Jake and that's Will and we're back. Uh, took a week off to kind of collect and finally we're able to get back on the road. Uh, great guests with Jeff and Brian from Moniker Brewery, Brewery uh, this week. And, uh, well, I got shelled at the kiosk this weekend for football. Um, not great for me, not sure about you, but, uh, this has been such a weird week of football that, you know, all bets are kind of off at this point. I did pretty well, actually did pretty well. Started Hmm. off with a nice college football plus 600 win on Saturday, and then Sunday, I mean, my big hitters were Cardinals plus three. Um, what other ones? Cardinals plus three. Uh, Jags covering. The Eagles covering on Thursday. Yeah. I mean, there was a couple big ones, but I think the most disappointing game of the day was last night. Bills yeah. blew it. The Bills blew it. Um, I called Chris Handled four times. I did not get a response yet. <laughs> I'm a little disappointed, but yeah, I had the Bills hammered that at five and a half. And they, I don't know. I mean, listen, the Titans are a serious team when they, when they want to be, you know, I think the Bills are top of the AFC, but the Titans can be a sneaky pick for that, um, for their division in their own. But Josh Allen, right at the one yard line, could not get it done, could not squeeze it into the end zone. They should have just kicked the field goal to win it. Um, but very disappointing matchup by the Bills. Like, dude, the Titans shelled the Bills last time out. You would have, I think everyone in the building was like, oh, the Bills are going to run away with it, including me. I'm offender number one. I picked them as my lock of the week this week. And then all of a sudden, fucking, wh- what happened to this Bills defense? They're just gone. I guess Derrick Henry and everybody else was just too much for them. But uh, we'll, we'll do some rapid-fire football as we move on here. To start off our show, of course, is beers, and we're back on the road. Hit Moniker Brewery this week and uh, had the chance to sit down with Jeff Goodnow, Brian Benedict from Moniker. Um, For those of you that don't know, Moniker is pretty new to the scene. They're less than a year old uh, in Providence, right across the street from Beer on Earth. Had a great conversation with them about launching the brewery and surviving and really thriving in this environment too. So let's dive into it for our beer segment, crack open a, your favorite IPA or lager stout, what have you, and enjoy our interview with Jeff and Brian from Moniker. All right, everybody with us this week, we have Jeff Goodnow and Brian Benedict, the founders of Moniker Brewery located on West Fountain Street. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Doing well, man. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you guys inviting us to the brewery. Uh, We're excited to hear about, you know, everything you've done here in the past almost year. You know, we got the one year coming up in January, but first off, we'll start with the cheers. Mm -hmm. So appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. And uh, share with us, you know, tell us who you guys are and that inception story of Moniker Brewery. Um, Well, I think it was kind of two paths colliding. Jeff had been working on a project. Uh, it's always kind of been my end game is to do something like this. Um, and our paths kind of crossed through mutual friends. Um, and we had a couple meetings, a 
aligned, you know, saw that our goals were kind of aligned. And at the, around, the, around the same time, this building became uh, available. And once we kind of saw the spot, we're like, well, we might, very, very rarely does a spot with location and a little bit of character you know, pop up. And that kind of lit the fire underneath us to, to really put our money into our mouth is write a better business plan, financing, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I had been running a brewery consulting company. I, I've been brewing since 2006, commercially, all over the Northeast. Uh, in 2017, I moved back to Connecticut, launched a brewery consulting company, built a couple of breweries for people. Uh, through that, Brian had caught wind of me reached out to me, started talking about, you know, saying that he wanted to build a brewery, uh, just kind of picking my brain. We got together, as he mentioned, we had a couple of meetings and realized that, you know, we kind of had similar goals. So instead of just building a brewery and sourcing a brewer, it worked out where, you know, he's he comes from the sales background, um, tremendous amount of front of house sales knowledge, something I don't have at all. You know, my whole, my entire career has been production. I've never worked in the tasting room at all. Um, and then, you know, so vice versa, right? So Brian had all the sales knowledge, but would have needed a brewer to do this. So it's just kind of, it's a great symbiotic relationship, right? It's like he had what I needed and vice versa. And so, yeah. Yeah, we started... God, I guess it was probably 2018 we started talking about all this. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was current, like at that time period, he was working for Beard in Connecticut. Uh, I was still in the process of building a brewery in Lawrence, Mass. So we both had other things happening at the time. But pretty much as soon as that project ended in Lawrence, I was able to kind of start focusing on this. And I think probably right around that time period is when, you know, like you said, this building came up available. We looked at a couple of different places around Providence, but this was, I mean, the minute we saw this, it was like, all right, it, we need to make this happen. Yeah, we're going to dive into all that, too, because so, uh, where we are physically is pretty interesting, too, to your business model and the customers that you're trying to attract and, and all that. <clears throat> so we'll start off first with, we've got the beers in front of us. What are we drinking here and what's, uh, what's on tap here today? All right, well, the beer that we're drinking currently is a Kolsch. Um, it is a collaboration beer that we did with Counterweight Brewery in Connecticut. Uh, yeah, I mean, just straight up traditional German Kolsch, you know. Pride of Cologne. Kolsch style. Yeah, Kolsch style. We'll get some letters from the Germans if we don't say the style part. Collect. Uh, yeah, so we... Uh, we made this beer, I don't know, it, it was about a five week beer total, I guess. So we probably made this maybe six, seven weeks ago, um, just at the taps. So we're pretty happy with this one. It's phenomenal, very refreshing. Hits the style to the T. Um, in your whole portfolio of beers at Moniker, what would you say are your, you know, if someone's walking in, they need to have these two, three, four beers, 
or just your brewing style for the uh, breweries itself? Like, what are your 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 key hitters, your your top beers that everyone uh, knows Moniker for? Oh, definitely. So the cream ale, right? So like um, the gentleman that had walked through here a little bit ago is Ben Eskies. He's our head brewer. Uh, ben came from New York. Um, well, we picked him up from original brewery, but he's from New York originally, and he's a huge Genesee fan. So grew up <laughs> drinking Genesee cream ale. Nothing wrong know, with that. <laughs> when uh, when we were getting when Ben and I were getting ready to brew our first batch on the system. We started talking about what style of beer we wanted to kind of put through it as the first run. Had to be something easy, something not super expensive to make. But like for me, a big part of what I wanted to do here was beer flavored beer. You know, there's a lot of really uh, niche weird stuff out in the market right now and you know every time brian and i had a meeting we were drinking german lagers right so it's like we 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 figured out pretty early on that we both have a really big appreciation for this for a, a good like real actual beer flavored beer you know so uh bringing ben into the mix he also shares that same love and you know, like I said, with his background with Genesee and whatnot, it's like, all right, well, let's do a cream ale. And we we did it, again, true to style. You know, it is um, it is on tap now, but it is it is the one beer, it's called Debut Single. It was our first beer. It's the one beer that when we run out of it, people ask for it, you know, which is in an IPA-saturated market. You would think it'd be our IPAs, but it's funny, you know, it's actually... It's the cream ale. So definitely point people in that direction. Um, I think it's important to note, though, that we are, our goal is to not necessarily provide a certain specific subset of the beer, you know, world. We want everyone to come in here to have a beer to drink. So our focus is variety. Everything. Right? Right. We don't want to have seven IPAs and two pastry stouts on tap. We know that they sell, we know people love them, but there's a lot of other people out there who like, oh, you know, Everything. a cream ale, a pilsner, mm-hmm. you know, dark, you know, a, a dry Irish stout. So we, we try to create a kind of, you know, a full spectrum of beers uh, yep. so that if you live in this neighborhood, um, you can come and find a beer every day that you'll love. And our focus really is trying to bring that neighborhood crowd in here um, and be the drink, the watering hole, so to speak, um, and or, or a cornerstone uh, of the people who live here, live around here. So you guys have totally different backgrounds. Jeff, you just alluded to it. Basically, you know, you brought experience to the table that Brian didn't, and vice versa. So we'll start with your career too. 1997 was the origins as a home brewer. You. Yep. Did that basically until 2006 where you went pro. That was at what's now CB Craft Brewers in, in Western New York. And, um, you know, taking this right from your website, they called you the effing new guy brewer to all the way up to the head brewer at, you know, all different sizes, all from seven to even 200 barrels, right? So what were some of those learnings, right? Take us through, you don't have to talk about every stop, obviously, but, you know, what were those things that early in your career you learned pretty quickly? Oh, man. Uh well, at Custom Brew Crafters, I was really thrown into it, just literally thrown into the wolves there. Um, I st- 
started there as basically a helper helping out on packaging days and then one of their brewers just bailed and the head brewer there he and I are still very good friends to this day but um, he was pretty much left super short-handed like overnight and uh, you know he was like all right well you're gonna I walked in one day he's like you're gonna learn how to CIP tanks you're gonna learn how to sell her it's like okay <laughs> you know so that like just being kind of thrown into it like that that was definitely all these years later I remember that day like it was yesterday you know and that was kind of that turning point at the time uh, I had another job as well so the brewery was kind of a part-time gig for me it didn't take long before I ended up leaving that other job and focusing on brewing full-time and I mean yeah since that day it's just been I feel like I learned something every day you know and, uh, obviously Brewing at Victory was, that, that, that was a completely different world. Um, starting at Victory, I went there from uh, the original Trout River up in Vermont, so that was a 20-barrel system. Victory was a 50-barrel at the time. Brewing like five batches of beer a day, 24-7. It just, you know, that was a whole different, like I said, totally different world, mind-blowing. As soon as I thought I had kind of gotten used to that we built Parksburg so then I ended up at the 200 barrel brewery and uh, you know a thousand barrel fermenters just <laughs> yeah it was wild man you know so those are like those were all I, again I, I mean I learned something all the time but I think those were all kind of real milestone points in my career that just changed kind of shook up the etch a sketch a little bit you know and kind of changed everything and then, of course, you know, coming in here and going back to a 10-barrel system, but now having not only the production side of it, but, you know, working with Brian on the business side of it and just all the, the you know, logistics that it's all stuff that I never really had to worry that much about, even as a head brewer or director of operations. You know, at the end of the day, it was someone else's brewery, so it's uh, it's been pretty wild, man. It's been a it's been a wild ride <laughs> the last 15, 16 years, whatever it's been. It's been craziness. But in that, so in your beer resume, you know, you've had three different types of roles. You've had the brewer role. You now mm -hmm. are in that owner role. But you also had that consulting role as well. Yeah. Um, you helped bring, we have the numbers right here. What 27 breweries in nine, nine states, states and two, two countries. countries. Yeah. First of yeah. all, what was the second country? Was it Canada? Uh, the Bahamas. Oh, Bahamas. Yeah, yeah. I, I spent uh, the entire month of February last year in Nassau. Oh, my God. So, um, it's a good and, way to do it right before the world, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that, was, that was the funny thing, you know, is I flew home and there was actually talk about having me go back and then COVID hit, like, like literally like, three weeks later. Oh you know, so, but yeah, I was very fortunate that I was able to spend literally the entire month in NASA. It was, I mean, it's paradise. You know, it was awesome. <laughs> um, so, no waves though. No waves. No, no waves. waves. No waves. Uh, lots of sharks, uh, but not like not like great whites like we have here. They had like all kinds of bull sharks and shit that <laughs> they come right up to shore. You know, so there's 
there's definitely a sketch factor to the Bahamas. <laughs> so in that role with the consulting, you know, what pieces of information or experiences helped you create Moniker, or what did you bring along that oh, journey yeah. Oh, yeah. to uh, you know help bring us where we are today? Yeah, so that was again lots of conversations with Brian. Um, what I wanted to focus on with this project, as far as layout in this room and whatnot, uh, learning not not even necessarily what to do, but more what not to do. Um, so Taproot Brewery over at Newport Vineyard, uh, John Nunes over there. I built Taproot for John. We fit a seven-barrel brewery into about 900 square feet. All right. So, and it's a fully functional brewery with a canning line, so that worked out very well. But there were definitely some logistic issues there, right? Um, and then at Spicket River, Spicket is also a seven-barrel brewery, but it's a much larger space. It also had some challenges as far as layout went. So with this build, um, I mean, we have our own challenges. You know, it filled up way more than I ever expected it to you can see right right um we have really no storage in this building so that's kind of what sucked but a couple of the things that you know i learned with this build is um you know think about where you want to be later on down the road plan for it right so currently we have four fermenters two lager and tanks in the freight tank but when we did our glycol system we already have like the drops for more fermenters. We went with an oversized chiller. We went with an oversized feed for our glycol loop. You know, there's there's a lot of things that we put into place here, kind of thinking more down the road. Um, yeah, just uh, lots learn, and lots of planning. Learn from our previous yeah. endeavors so that we right. can kind of grow as quick as we needed to yeah. and not have to spend more with every you know, adventure, whether it's distribution or like crazy growth, which we hope to see someday, but we won't have to you know, take out a loan to buy a bigger brew house. Right? Yeah. And, uh, we, can, we can grow pretty comfortably for a while uh, and skip those, I call them the awkward years, that year one to three where you're buying all this equipment that you decided not to buy because you're on a budget or you know more fermenters to keep up with your tap room bigger fermenters to make, keep up with certain brands. We have the ability to scale a little quicker than, you know, and we, you know, we built that into the, to the whole model um, uh, in this room. Yeah. So let's talk about your experience as a perfect transition into, you know, kind of Brian, how you entered this industry, traded in the career in IT <coughs> to pursue beer. Um, you had almost every non-production job that you could possibly find, right? The very opposite of Jeff's career. Um, you know, you're a warehouse guy, you're a buyer, you're a sales rep on the marketing side of Beard, obviously. So what did you learn from those from those grunt jobs starting off and all the way up to the sales and marketing side? Yeah, so starting from the, you know, I left a job in IT, which was great, but I just knew I didn't want to do that for the next 40, 50 years, potentially. Um, and I got very lucky and got a job with a bottle shop, a group of bottle shops in Philadelphia. Uh, that exposed me to, it was like a fast track of beer, um, you know, how the sales side works, like reps and distributors, how the, what their daily grind is from, a, from, from the retailer's perspective. But I also got, you know, this place had, I can't remember exactly, but it was something like 2,000 bottles of beer on the wall. 
uh, that you can come in <laughs> and nice. and you do mix of six. So I got a crash course in styles and what breweries were were making really great beer. You know what sales reps were excellent. You know and the idea there was to build a resume and then try to find a sales job, try to make a career out of it. And along the way, I got to meet some really awesome people and really fall in love with the industry. Um, at the time, I, I, you know, I would say, unfortunately, I couldn't get a job in Philly, but it turned out to be a blessing. So I, I'm from the D.C. area. My wife is from up here, so I started applying a job in Philly down there and up here. Um, got lucky, got a, a job with a wholesaler here. And that's where things really started to accelerate because then I was really starting to get into things like planning, brand development, um, and kind of understand what it actually takes to build a brewery uh, because it's not just about the tap room. There's a lot that goes out on out here, you know, selling to bars and restaurants. And it was there where I got to really see the full breadth of it. So I worked with breweries as small as a, a single barrel with Crooked Current, not yeah. too far from here. And, you know, a couple three barrel breweries. I was working with Whalers and Proclamation right at the very, very beginning to brands like Oma Gang, Duval, um, you know, Brooklyn uh, Boulevard. So seeing this different scales uh, and that's where kind of where transition started seeing the, the, you know, how hard it was for some of these smaller brands to grow, you know, always jumping over hurdles and stuff like that. Um, that I think brought some of the most uh, important information that I've retained. Uh, you know, I think I kind of maxed out what I could do at the wholesaler, and a really awesome opportunity presented itself to be the director of sales and marketing at Beard Brewing, and that was really great and very interesting because they were going from a, a transitional period that you don't see a ton of breweries nowadays go from, and they were, I think they started at a five. Then they went, or but then went to a seven. Then they went to a fifteen. Um, and when I got there, they were just onboarding their thirty barrel brew house, and six, you know, and they had a bunch of sixty barrel tanks. So they, I sit when I sat down there, it was going from at the most one hundred and fifty cases a batch. You know, obviously it was never that much. There was always draft involved to somewhere up to six hundred cases a batch. So being having to figure out how to scale and then self distribute, you know, almost four times as much liquid um, was really a fast learning curve but really fun really exciting um, and there's stuff there that we apply here every single day like being able to be with part of a brand like that that's accelerating so quick and, and being able to you know you retain a lot of things like you know what like the signs of retailers like how they're responding to a brand right because you know going from six accounts to 200 accounts it's you get a lot more information and data that will tell you if something's working or something's not and then they, they still have the flexibility to kind of pivot really quickly because big brands don't really have that ability mm -hmm. you know they go well this is the plan for the year if it doesn't work we'll figure it out next year <laughs> whereas you know when you're at the 10 15 even even 30 barrel uh, size you can go well that didn't work let's not do that again Right, like let's fix it tomorrow as opposed to like yeah, yeah, next it month, in six yeah. months. Right. Yeah, you got to get rid of the beer you made first. Yeah. But yeah. So you were talking about at some of these places hurdles that these brands mm -hmm. had to jump. Do you have any in particular? Obviously, you don't have to name yeah, names, I mean, but what yeah, are some I mean, of those there's, hurdles? There's that just people a lot of have? do you know? We don't need this particular. We can we can jerry rig something to perform 
as well as a normal keg washer or something like that, right? But what they don't realize is, you know, if, if that process is really cumbersome, you're, you're gonna, you know, it takes twice, three times as long to clean a keg because you want something that you made yourself. It can really wear on people's morale, you know, your things like uh, labor costs and things like that. So we tried to streamline things as much as possible here so that we weren't spending hours on hours and hours doing things right. that could be done with, with a piece of equipment quickly, right? Um, or the fact that people go with a much smaller system because it's generally, you know, you may not need to finance it or uh, it's much, much cheaper, but they don't realize that, you know, seven barrels, five barrels is not a lot of beer. So if you're doing really well, you're, you're just gonna, you're not gonna be able to grow because you can't make enough beer. And then not enough people are drinking your beer, then there are not, not enough people are talking about it. Ten, we kind of fell under the 10 barrel system because you know, if, if, you, if you really do the math, it's a decent amount of liquid. Um, it's scalable to even more with the 20 barrel like fermenters, you can double batch. So if we were to you know, experience rocket growth or a, a brand that really takes off, we were capable of capitalizing on it without another capital expenditure so that it, you know, we weren't going into debt or you know, relying on, you know, who knows, if we had to get a new brew house within this current climate of supply chain, we, we could be SOL. I don't think, you know, who knows what the lead time is on, on equipment yeah. nowadays, yeah. right? Um, yeah, so, I mean, honestly, to tie directly into that and your question about what I've learned through building other breweries, it's that right there, right? If, if you can swing it, buy new equipment, right? Buy good stuff, do your research, find, you know, you don't have to have the Ferrari, but you know, don't, don't get the Pinto, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like buy the, the best equipment that you can afford right away because ultimately you're either yourself or your staff are really going to appreciate it, you know? Like, there's so many breweries out there that, like Brian said, they kind of jerry-rig things, you know what I mean? They, they buy used equipment, and you're always buying someone else's problem. Because as a brewer, I can tell you with 100% certainty, you fuck with everything, <laughs> right? It's like when we're, we're very much like farmers. If something starts to break, we're going to fix it ourselves. Yeah. And all that used equipment that's out there, someone fucked. Yeah, totally. <laughs> someone played with it. Glad he said that word. I wasn't yeah. sure if we were allowed to say. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Hey, nothing. Just nothing off color. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. nothing that could possibly yeah. offend anybody. But so, no, it makes sense. You know, and then so like with the brew house, you know, as Brian alluded to, right? So you start doing some research and you look at the numbers on brew houses. The price difference between a seven barrel and a ten barrel isn't that big, right. but at the end of the day, three barrels of beer, yield-wise, is huge. Right? the The amount, the margin on six kegs of beer is huge compared to how small of a difference it is when you're purchasing the equipment new. Right. You'll, you'll, so. return, you'll return that that gap in price a batch or two quick for yeah, sure and the other main you know the biggest thing that i think a lot of people forget is this still is a root this is a business it's a manufacturing business and they're capital intensive yeah. they always are moving forward too so what i saw a lot were some local brands who were experiencing all this growth and they were just constantly dipping in 
to their cash reserves to make more beer. So they were never really able to build, you know, any cash reserves, which is really important, you know, for your your, your P and L and everything. So, you know, a healthy company has a lot of cash. Uh, simple as that. And if you're always spending what you make, you're one problem away from a disaster. Right. Yeah. right? If you Something happens, somebody gets hurt, who knows? You're, you have to spend a lot of money on something big breaks that you never expected to break. You know, and, and you had just bought four more fermenters or a new brew house. It could spell disaster for your company, particularly if you're over leveraged and you can't borrow any money to help pay for that. Yeah. So we knew that we wanted to set ourselves up for as long a period as possible before things started to break, A. But also have the ability to, you know, make the money when the money was available, right? If if we can't make enough beer to satisfy demand, or, you know, you might as well consider that you know losing money because you you, know, you got 150 people, 200, 2,000 people who want to drink your beer, but you can't supply it. Then right. what's the point of having the equipment? Right? We had a question down here to hit that was you know. How'd you guys make all these decisions and who did you ask to help? But I mean, it sounds like you guys had a, a really good grasp on what you needed to do, what not to do from your yeah. previous experience. Is for that sure. accurate? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. Skip that weird yeah. growth three years at a lot of small breweries, you know, get positioned to be more of like some, a more mature, you know, brewery financially and everything. And so far, so good. Yeah. You know? Yep. Uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about COVID, but, yeah. you know, I think all things considered, the storm was weathered pretty well. And there were yeah. some things that really helped us and kept us vibrant. Being new help, always helps, right? But um, both being in the only place open. Well, <laughs> coming in from, you know, I I would never ever talk badly about any homebrewers opening breweries, right? Because, I mean, everybody gets into it somehow. But the fact that both Brian and myself come in from like having a decent amount of background in the industry. We've been able to build a lot of friendships in the industry, right? So we, we both have a tremendous amount of solid industry friends at other breweries. And when we opened, I think that helped us a lot because right out the gate, I mean, I know from like brewers and brewery owner side of things, just for myself, I had so many people like speaking highly of this brewery who have, who had never been to this brewery, you know, and even though I very much appreciate that, it's kind of funny, you know what I mean? It's just, just because people that I've known over the years that have had beers that I've made or knew the brewers I worked at or whatever, I guess they just had faith that we were going to hit the ground running. And I think that helped us a lot, but again, on both sides, right? Like, like we both had those contacts and I know so many people came in here within our first like month, month and a half saying like, Oh, you know, Matt Steinberg at exhibit a said, I need to come check you guys out. Yeah. All right. Well, that's awesome. Matt, he's a great friend of mine, but you know, he, at that point in time, he had never been here. So it's, it's cool that like industry people were kind of feeding I don't know, kind of feeding people to us. So that really helped at the very beginning. And then I think it didn't take long for us to, we just, you know, we make quality product. And like Brian said, the, the, 
since day one, it's been diversity has been the name of the game. So once just even non-industry, you know, just the general consumer walking in here, if you either don't drink IPAs or maybe you're a little burnt out on IPAs, walking into this brewery where it was, there were nine beers on tap and maybe only one or two of them were an IPA, you know, it was kind of a nice thing for the general consumer. Um, so that really helped us in those early midwinter COVID, you know, and then I would say that by, what, what would you say, maybe five, five months down the road, you know, we had, I think we had made enough of our name, like a name for ourselves just, and at that point it was like, we're, there's so many people that show up here from other states and, you know, just like, oh, I heard of you guys. All right, that's cool, you know, oh, you know. I'm from Virginia, I heard the owner's from Virginia. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> I don't know how you heard of us, but cool, you know. So A lot of different directions yeah, we can go say, from here. That's a good testament of, like, that right. beer community, you know, people. Yeah. It's all word of mouth, and uh, obviously the bread maker of this business is the beer itself. So what would you say was the best avenue for you guys to get your beer name out there besides those connections? What was the distribution like? How did you get people to come in and try your beer? That's, that's oh, marketing, it's, marketing king over here. It's complex. Um, but I would say the, 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 honestly the biggest help from looking back, it wasn't at the time, it was, not, it was a very scary thing at the time, but we opened in January during you know, lockdown basically. Mm -hmm. So they had just changed the rules so that you could have indoor seating, but it was six feet between um, or dividers. So we had a tap room with four tables in it, no bar service, um, and a decent out, out, outside patio. And you know we didn't have a choice. We had to open. We had to serve people. We had to get people in here. And because of the climate at the time, I mean, thinking about this street, there are one, two, three for there were five restaurants on this street this street alone all of them were closed uh, one was doing to go uh, I guess two were doing to go so we were the only place in the neighborhood that was open by necessity we needed cash cash flow is you know the life of any business right so that helped the neighborhood came out and supported us like crazy it was 12 degrees one night. I will never forget. And we didn't have a single table outside or in. Yeah. And we were turning people away. Wow. And there, it's like. There um, were days that our, our beer garden, it looked like, if you had taken a photo of it, you would think that it was a ski lodge. You know? It was like just people <laughs> out there. Oh, yeah. Like, like, yeah, right. Snow pants, winter jackets. Was, oh, my God. Like, showing yeah, up a, prepared. You know? Yeah, like, I'm, was, I'm going to have a beer. They might have snowboarded over here. They might have. We all, we all <laughs> lived through this, so we all know that there's a point for every household where it's like, yeah, I just, just gotta get out. can't yeah, take it yeah, anymore. Yeah. And we were one of very few places that was open. And, and to a, to for a lot of people, it was kind of a safe open because we, you know, we had four tables inside. And at the time, oh, 12, 20, 25 tables outside. So, and they were all, we had all this space, it was a giant parking lot out front, so, and it's all private property, so we have to go through the city to do any of this stuff. Um, so we just had a lot of space 
a lot of tables and people came out right. and, and you know they could get food here they could bring their own food they could bring dogs and right. kids right it helped it really did and and we see a lot of those people still so we were able to build a pretty um active following or regular base pretty quickly uh which helped a lot because again cash flow is everything with a business and Having an established line of, you know, of, of pretty solid cash flow from the beginning uh, helped a lot. And then from there, it was, you know, again, things kind of helped. You know, we had, we were able to market this place almost a year before it opened, um, and it was COVID. So what was everyone doing? Right. They're sitting on their couches on their phones. So things like Instagram in particular uh, really helped spread the word before we were open. So I, I think we had something like. 2,000 followers before we open the doors. Which is, um, yeah. I think awesome. I, I just yeah, realized I still have your post notifications on from when you guys were about to open. I'm like, I need to get every single update. So that just goes to show, I mean, it's how many more people are that, you know, that you yeah. guys yeah, generate 2,000 followers before you open your doors. There was a lot of hype, which was, you know, yeah. that was great. Oh, hype. Not, yeah, exactly. Not like, not treehouse hype, but, uh, you know, there, but was, there, was, there was a lot of, there was, there was a lot of people talking about this, you yeah. know, and, and following our, our progress and just wanting to see it happen, you know, and I think that's the biggest thing that we've had support from day one, you know, just, yep. it's yep. awesome. The neighborhood's been awesome. And I'm, that's again, I'm not from here, you know, so it's when I meet people here and they, they're so excited about this building and being able to come here and drink beer and, you know, and then we get into that conversation of they start talking about the neighborhood, and, you know, and, and they, they, I would say 90% of them always assume that I'm from this area, Yeah. you know, so it's, it's always like this kind of funny moment when I'm like, yeah, I, two streets over, I have no clue, you know yeah. what I mean, it's like I, I drive an hour to get here every day, I come here, I, I do my job, I go home, Yeah. I really don't spend a lot of time here. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it seems like every single time I have that conversation, people are like, oh, my God, you got to go here. You got to do that. You got to. People are so proud of the neighborhood, you know. So and let's dive into that now, to too. That's the next point. You know, that, that's, that's the third the piece of the, right. of the marketing puzzle is, you know, when we were looking at this, it was, the, you know, there's a lot of places that go, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm not going to name any names. Right. But there's certain areas in every state where you see like a cluster of breweries and stuff like that and mainly it's because it's more affordable area you get a little bit more you know square footage for your price but you know without this neighborhood we wouldn't have had that right. that right. first couple of months because sure. we have the foot traffic people are going for walks they walk their dog they walk their kids they're going to the gym they're driving Again, to work now all those people sitting out there in snow pants yeah, yeah. you know those you know, people didn't drive here like that they yeah. walked here so the, so, the fact that the, yeah. the location was one of the, the you know this place you know our you know where we are now would not exist if it wasn't for the location so that the, this location really helped everything yeah, for sure and it still does i mean the number of times i've talked to a customer is like uh hey is your first time yes but i've been driving by for months and i've been meaning to come here so right. they see us every day you know with the new front area that's even accelerated things even more now people are like oh i walked by and i had to come in yeah right? because now we got the light the music and the people are out front instead of out in the back corner um so it, the location was the other piece that really drove for home sure. that early like 
success because if we were in a farm somewhere in the middle of nowhere Rhode Island or in a in a mill with no houses around it you know it would have been really hard it's to tough. draw people in right, right. or raise that awareness from like a grass grassroots yeah. foot traffic's important for yeah. sure and I mean we're pretty fortunate where like, this street in general Coming up. There's, there's a yeah. lot of awesome stuff on this yeah. street. A lot of know? good food, and you know, yeah. and let's talk about that too. You know, your physical environment. Obviously, it's a repurposed auto body shop. Um, but mm-hmm. now, you know, you, besides maybe the garage, you wouldn't really be able to tell. You know, the, the modern art, the concrete floors, all that good stuff. But you know, the reality, the fact is, you guys have all of this food and entertainment, and right. you know, even other breweries, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. correct. Um, so, and we're super into, lucky, like. Speaking of that, right, having beer on earth directly across the street, you know, years ago I had spoke with an industry colleague when, when I first started thinking about trying to open a brewery, and the word of advice was no one's going to travel an hour to go to a brewery, but they'll travel an hour to go to two or three breweries. Yeah, right, which is so true, and you know that it's it's so wonderful to not just have a brewery, but like those guys make killer beer. You know, so I, I would I would still support them the same, even if the product wasn't amazing. But it's just that added bonus, right? It that, helps when you have the yeah, product there to right. back it up. That exactly. clientele, like that overflow. You know, it's I know that if people are showing up at Beer on Earth, they they have a discerning palate. You know, what I mean, they're yeah. drinking good beer, so it uh, it works well. And Bayberry, and then like you said, all the restaurants. And, so this is unquestionably, you guys are, it sounds like you are of the viewpoint that this is helpful for the yeah. industry oh, and for you guys to have all this. For sure, man. Right. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. For sure. There's, so, like, th- this is the funny part, too. Like, Brian is kind of, he's kind of an anomaly in, like, the sales side of things because he's genuinely so supportive of everyone, right? And, like, so on the production side of things, I've since day one in my career, I've kind of been bred to think that way, right? Like, I need all these other proofs Because ultimately, on this side of things, a pump's going to fail. I'm going to need hops. I'm going to have to borrow a hose. I'm going to need something. And we help each other out. You know, craft brewers always help each other out. There is zero competition. It's 100% camaraderie. But most not all but most of the sales people that i've come in contact with in my life they don't see it that way right because they're all fighting for tab handles yeah so they just don't understand the camaraderie side of the production world of brewing whereas brian is not like that you know and that's one of the things i've always respected about him is like it's you know he he truly believes that if we help other breweries it's good for it's good for us. It's good for everyone, you know. And that's I love that. So, first of all, I'm going to defend all my sales friends. <laughs> we're not terrible it's like people. Faces that's like that's like, like all these like, damn rats. I have, I have so many friends that are salesmen that I'm going to get so much fucking hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> can, wait, can we edit all that out? We'll cut I don't, it out we don't even <laughs> remember this was live. <laughs> Live in the brewery, yeah. <laughs> but that location, the, the hidden gem of West Bottom Street. Yeah. Obviously, you have a ton of businesses, but also Rhode Island as a whole. You know, it is a it's a very saturated market with those craft breweries. But 
word word travels. People try to stamp that passport and try to go to every single right. place. They want to go to Untapped and be like, "What does Monica oh, yeah. have? What does everyone have?" For sure. So you have that location of your outside neighborhood, but you have your physical location of this space, this auto garage. Um, it still has obviously the doors and everything, but you guys made a modern twist to it. Very, you know, trendy, very artistic, very like beautiful on the inside. What was that vision of creating this space? You guys talked about, it was like, oh, when we found this space, we knew we gotta, yeah. you know, we gotta jump on it. What was that first vision of like, how'd you find it and what did you want to accomplish with it? Well, we found it just, I used to live in the neighborhood and I always knew this place was here. And every time I drove by, I was like, that would make a great brewery or anything really in the retail world. It's big doors that roll up. You know, I was just thinking, you know, like the last week, it was 75 degrees every day. It was perfect, right? right. Uh, tons of outdoor space. There's, I would say, a lack of like quality outdoor space in Providence. It's just a, you know, it's a city. It's hard, you know, there's a couple places like Ogie's or Providence Rooftop, uh, obviously Hot Club, but there's there's not a lot that, that, that Places you can take your kid or your dog or both and have the space to, to just hang out for an hour or two. And that was the real goal with, uh, long term for wherever we, we, you know, we put down our roots. But when we saw this, it was like back, you know, we got almost, we have almost double, almost triple the amount of square footage for outdoor seating than we do indoor seating. And it's exactly what yeah. we wanted. And then from the, from the design aspect of the inside, um, I mean, we aren't interior designers. So we found, and one of the things that we always, it's written into our business plan is to be as local as possible across the board. And we, we work with two really lo great local companies, Libby Slater Design, knocked out a parking sheet with her original like uh, mood board, so to speak, um, as to where she saw this going. And we knew we didn't want to be at the brewery with a bunch of old barrels and no. pallets and stuff. Classy, you know, but not a pallet, you know, pallet tables and pallet bar. We wanted something to, we wanted to bring a little bit of, you know, contemporary feel to this place, but also, you know, still rooted in what makes, you know, what we all know and love about beer or breweries. That is. Um, so, she introduced us to these guys over in Rumford Art Wood, and they have they they repurpose local like beams of wood from. They're all reclaimed from old uh, mills. Textile mills. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and it's like really old growth pine. It smells amazing. Um, <laughs> and they put together these different designs for us, and this is perfect. So we, you know, we can we can still lean on the wood, but you know, it's cleaner. It's a little bit more contemporary, and it really fit our. We, you know, just like in here, we wanted to have something a little bit more put together over there, so that we weren't always upgrading everything. You know, we still do that tables all the time and new chairs and all that kind of stuff but we wanted to have a more settled feel when we opened so that you know everyone was comfortable right and just a good again you know, it's really hard to bring your dog classic. and your kid if you're sitting on a pallet with nails on it or you know right. it's not a baby proof area so that that was again through the consulting right it's like build it and they will come that's that's right. kind of become the Very field of dreams. Of music. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, that's kind of become the mindset of a lot of small breweries over the last fifteen years, right? I mean, how many breweries have you been to that are in like storage units, industrial parks? I mean, look at Crooked Current. You know, it's, that's a uh, Brian knows, and we've worked with them. It's, it's like it's, it's like 
right in the thick of a, an industrial yeah. park. Pe- people are going to show up, you know, and yeah. they're they're going to they're going to sit on makeshift chairs and pallets have been turned into tables or stand. You know, yeah. it's, lines it's, are out the door at that place right, come the right, winter, right? Exactly. So. It's, it's I, I think they're, they're going to do that. We just didn't early. want that, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like we wanted to have something a little more, just a little more put together, a little more. A, a, a lot of this is DIY, but like on that, like the aesthetics part of it, we didn't really want the, you know, your buddy's garage feel. Yeah, well, so. the days of being able to open a brewery in a garage and have a line out the door, it's got to pass because there's so many breweries now, and there's so many people, the people, the, the, the customers have been in the industry for so much longer that they have favorites, and they're going to go to Proc or Trillium or Crooked Current every Friday because that's what they've been doing for the last 15 years. So, you know, we had to make sure that, you know, it was all part of, the, it's all kind of part of the marketing plan too, right? Like we had to look nice. We had to, right out the gate or to set us up, to set us apart from everyone else. You know, we, you know, we could absolutely have done everything uh, in there by ourselves in our own design, but could we have had the same success? Pro- potentially, but um, I really felt that and we all, we both really felt that um, it it just needed the pop. Yeah, for sure. Like I mean, like it's I said, it's a lot that's, more competitive than it was yeah, in the that, early two thousands or right late nineties. Not not to like you said. I mean, those places they do have lines out the door, right? But like that was one of the things that I took with me after working with so many different clients in those atmospheres. Right. Is I always said, I don't want that. Yeah. You know, I. Neither does the customer, really. It's like, you know, you know and I mean, that's that's all part of this, right? It's like a good atmosphere, comfortable, again, classy but not pretentious, right? Just like, yeah, give give the consumer not just a good product, but also like a really super comfortable place to hang out. And I think and we place to grow that. into, too. Again, yeah. a lot of, you know, uh, how many times have you seen a brewery that gets a lot of success? They may be able to make enough beer with can they seat everyone who wants to be there? Right? So there's another thing about this location. It's like, wow, if we need to sit 400 people, we could. Right. right. Um, and Not I, on a rainy day. Yeah. yeah. Right. On you a know. rainy day, you're waiting. <laughs> but clearly on, on a snowy day, it'll work, yeah. though. That's the yeah. thing. No, you know? for sure. So um, sticking with the... I was going to say, yeah, go so, you know, as brewery owners, and you both came from obviously very different backgrounds, mm-hmm. that transition and that jump of you know, we want to do this, we want to start this. Were there any, was there ever a time you wish you had a piece of advice that you can now, you know, provide to somebody that wants to do the same thing? You know, what was something that you wish you knew that you can offer as a piece of advice for a potential brewery owner, a potential just business owner, someone wanting to, you know, switch careers? What advice would you wish you heard back then that you now know now? I mean, I, I can, for, for from a build-out perspective, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we probably should have dug a little deeper on, or uh, stuff stuff that we found that I think maybe we weren't really expecting. Um, so we went with a steam-jacketed brew house. Um, you know, obviously we need a boiler to produce that steam. Um, you know, when it came time to run those steam pipes, there's a pretty small 
percentage of people that are certified to do steam pipes and you know so it was it it was easy easy to find a boiler easy to find a brew house but connecting the two together proved to be a bit of a challenge um and uh it, you know it's just that that was that was an interesting part of our build that set us back a little bit i mm. guess trying to find the right people um there are contractors yeah con- yeah general contractors too you know and i mean covid did not help yeah right so again you gotta you gotta take into account that we signed a lease on this building in december of 2019 started the demo work and then covid hit so it was basically like start tearing everything out and then all of a sudden we had no contractors. So it was, yeah, it was interesting. You know, that that COVID threw a big wrench in our, our build-out plans for sure. But general contractors are challenging no matter <laughs> yeah. what. <laughs> yeah. So wait, to, to answer your question, are you, thinking, are you saying during our build-out or the whole entirety of our well, I would say like you know more you bulk, you know more yeah. of like the second. It's yeah. like yeah. you went from obviously I mm-hmm. into oh, the yeah. beer where, beer world, and then you went from being a craft brewer to wanting to own that craft brewery. It's yeah. like what advice would you want someone else to hear? Um, obviously, everyone's yep. going to make mistakes and learn from their lessons and stuff. But it's like what is something that you wish you heard that would help for that success where you are now? Uh, you know, the contractor thing still stays. Like managing contractors, Terrible. particularly on a larger build out, um, is something you you you've got to stay on top. And you know, this project would have been a lot quicker if we had a more all-encompassing. Like you know, he may have been able to. He's helped put this room together many times, but he may not have. You know, neither one of us had experience. On all the other things that need to be, right? You know, water. I've never, I've never built a bathroom. Yeah, you know all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that, I would say that that's still yeah. still, still yeah. very relevant for but sure. From my perspective, um, the biggest piece of advice I give anyone who ever wants to start one of these things is read up on balance sheets, and profit loss. Yep. Like you got this is still business, and there's a lot of costs that go into everyday work, not just the build out, and being able to manage those and understand what. You know, PL and have it organized so that you're paying less taxes or really understand your cash flow. Um, you know, what you're capable on a monthly basis of providing to your employees um, for your cost of sold. Like, you know, you can, if you don't have a full grasp of that, you can run out of money real quick and don't even realize it. Yeah. And, um, that is the most important part of any business. It doesn't matter. Now, unless you're one of the few breweries that literally prints money because they have you know, thousands of people showing up every week, um, it becomes a little less important then. But you know, understanding your margins and your costs and you know, what it really costs to make this—not just the materials you use, but you know, the gas that just clicked on, right? The water, um, you know, your labor. There's a lot of hidden costs in everything. And if you're not taking into account them, your margins aren't going to be right. And then you, you know, when it comes to, then you, you know, when you have to start distributing your beer, it becomes more important because then your caught your margin shrinks from a fat eighty percent to like thirty. And 
that 30, if you don't know exactly what's going on, could actually be like 17, 20, who knows? Um, it's super important. And that is the, you're going to start any business. You really got to understand what's going on in the back. And it's the, it sucks. It's boring. It's awful. I hate it. It's, it's so important. Yeah. So I mean, important. it's 90% of my time now. I just sit in front of QuickBooks. And, you know, that goes there. That goes there. Can we shave 10% off of that? Shipping right now is outrageous. Right. Just bought a bunch of tables, and the shipping was more expensive than the tables to sell. Yeah. <laughs> and when are you even going to get those tables? I yeah. did get them quickly, though. Okay, oh, good. Yeah, that's a far you cry from what the market's yeah. doing. Well, they're they were local. They're you know they, these are you know barrel tables, so they yeah. were already here. But these now, who knows? You probably can't get metal tables right now. Yeah, I think on a, a little getting beyond just this build, I guess. My advice to anybody opening a brewery right now like brewer side of things, quality, 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 you know, I mean, gone. So a decade ago, 15 years ago, I feel like localism started to kind of replace quality, you know, when all these small breweries started opening and all these different neighborhoods, places that had never had breweries before. I spoke with so many people who were like, oh, there's a brewery just opened down the road from us. We go there all the time. Okay. They're great. I love them. They're so wonderful. You know, and then you, you try the beer. Eh, meh, right? That doesn't happen anymore, right? The, the like being able to open a brewery with a mediocre product, I feel like those days are gone. And if they're not gone right now, they're going to be gone soon because you there's so many breweries now that, Every neighborhood just doesn't have that one. Usually neighborhoods have a couple. And at the end of the day, I feel like the consumer is going to say, well, you know, if you have three breweries right near your house and two of them make a mediocre product and one is not going to have a park, I mean, honestly, where are you going to go, right? I mean, once, once the newness of like, oh, I went there and I went there and I went there, a year later, you're probably going to go to the one with the better beer. You know, and I think that as more breweries open, you're going to see more of that. People are going to, they're going to start recognizing that, you know, local is cool. But if I have a couple of local ones to choose from, I'm probably going to go to the better place. Yeah. Right. So really make sure that you have a solid product. And, you know, if, if you are coming into it without any industry knowledge, make those industry friends, you know, talk with people who've been doing it for a while and get some advice and truly listen, you know, and that's, that's the other thing is, you know, I mean, we all, I think as brewers, brewers are very much like chefs, you know, we're a creative lot. And I think at deep down, we all, you know, want to, we, 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 even if you try to keep it subdued, I think anyone who creates anything for a living has some kind of an ego, right? And it's real easy to start to think like, oh, my product's awesome. All my friends tell me my beer's great. But, you know, listen to that one guy who says there's something wrong with this. Because he probably knows what he's talking about, you know? And no one gets better if they're not told that there's something wrong, right? So... That's that's the big thing, I guess. It's just quality, and you know, it's if it's not there yet, it's coming. Yeah. So, so start to wrap up too. You know, 
you guys have a very clear direction, it seems like, and you know, you've seem to have made all the right moves. So that being said, what does the future for Moniker look like? What does the next one, three, maybe 10 years out look like? Probably 2019 would be able to answer a question like that if we were already open. But right now, it's there's a lot of uncertainty. We're gonna, right, our biggest focus right now is to is to continue providing the, you know, the Moniker experience is what we call it internally and focusing on retaining as many customers as we can because they come here and they have a great time. Um, know and if we do that right we'll be able to hopefully expand you know this operation and I mean right. this is not the end-all be-all of, of moniker right. we definitely we want to grow to a uh, something bigger than this but you know right now it's really hard to plan around that because we just there's so much uncertainty particularly with the colder months coming and with COVID still kind of hiding under the couch somewhere um, you know it's, it's it's tough to plan around Right now, I'm, we're planning on staying healthy from a business perspective so that if COVID hits again, we're ready and we can weather it and wait for things to turn normal again. You know? Yep. Try to grow decently organic. And I mean, as mentioned, right, so we, we already have glycol drops for additional fermenters. Um, you know, if, if the need for the product is there, max out this room. And uh, yeah, see where it there's goes a lot of room to max out. Because <laughs> we can switch these all to 20s. We can get drop two more. It'll be tight. But right. if we're doing that, we also have a new storage unit somewhere. So yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> if there's anyone that can make it work, it's the guys that have been you know pondering this and the guy that's been consulting on it for you know many. Yeah, years, I, so. again, you know the chiller. So our chiller sits up on the roof. Um, that's actually why the the kettle stack kind of yep. takes that 70 degree angle is because the chiller is right above that giant beam. Um, our chiller is way oversized for what we're running right now. Uh, we could easily replace all these tens with twenties, and you know, it's again, it's that a little bit of forethought for growth and not having to worry about later on down the road once you know what i never want to do is have to shut down for a week to swap something out right it's like with new tanks we can easily drop new tanks in here um, and we can do it in a couple days you know while we're still running production so just yeah build it build it to whatever we can here and see what the next step is um, I think a better answer would be we want to become this neighborhood's beer, and then if the neighborhood loves us, the city will love us, and the state will come, you know, and, and uh, help build Rhode Island's beer scene sure. to, uh, to a very prestigious level. And I think it's already it's all well on its way. There's some great breweries already in the state, um, but we need more. And we, you know, we, we want to help build a beer tourism here. We want to help uh, elevate Providence as a whole. You know, you know there's, you know, we want to make there's Portland look like Providence. Portland look like the second choice. And we think Providence has what it takes to do that. Between the food, um, the bar scene, uh, the brewing scene that's that's popping up in Providence as a whole. There's a couple of breweries. It sounds like that are. In the planning stages right now, so we're super supportive of, of them if they're listening. Um, yeah, it's a very hyper local focus for us. 
Local is key. Local is key. Well, Local is key. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for inviting us here, and having, us, uh, having us on. Uh, where can our listeners find your beer and engage with your content? Find our beer here. Yeah, <laughs> we have. We, uh, we we just dipped our toes into selling some beer. Yeah. Uh, we have our own. We are self distributed, so we don't. You know, we kind of control where it goes. But Use Tavern's got us both multi barley's. Um, got it. The Scurvy Dog, uh, Pizza J and Julian's. A couple other ones coming soon. Um, and you know, you can find us on Instagram is our main. That's at monikerbrewery.com or at monikerbrewery. Our website's monikerbrewery.com. Um, and yeah, that's it. Yeah, man. I'd... Cool. Hell yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, this has you. been, obviously, we wish you nothing but the best of luck. We will be coming thank back you. for some Moniker beer for sure. It's Jeff Goodnow and Brian Benedict from Moniker. Guys, thanks a bunch. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And that was just the co-founders of Moniker Brewery, Jeff Goodnow and Brian Benedict. Uh, great, great conversation. You know, it was... It was fun to be able to obviously be back in the breweries. We always love doing that. But uh, afterwards, you know, we, we chatted with Jeff for pretty much a whole nother interview. And uh, those are always the fun ones where it's like off camera, uh, just talking about the different beers. You know, we got to try the new pumpkin beer that's going to be coming out at the end of this month, straight from the spigot. Um, so that was always, uh, you know, fun learning about the uh, inside of the industry. So Thank you to Brian and Jeff, and uh, we appreciate them coming on the show. Yeah, it was an excellent time. Um, thanks to our camera guy, Zach Mastriani, as well. Um, you know, we, we spent probably two probably two hours after the interview that we were just hanging with, uh, with the four of us and gave us the tour, really pulled back the curtain for us. So great stuff. Moniker Brewery, go check them out on Fountain Street in Providence. All right, let's go into business. We haven't talked about crypto in a while, and we're due. Bitcoin was hanging out at around the 50,000 mark, and it rallied back. It skyrocketed uh, these past couple of days. And a lot of people think uh, that there's not really a concrete answer as to why Bitcoin just increased. Um, Of course, it becomes more and more, you know, less clear as time goes on, but a lot of people also are saying that after being clamped by China a few weeks back, Bitcoin is now you know showing resilience. They think the SEC is approving a, a Bitcoin-related ETF, which they did do. It's called the ProShares Bitcoin Strategy ETF that's going to start trading this week. So that's what's going on with Bitcoin. Um, curious, Will, if you would ever go for something like this. Uh, it's an ETF that basically entirely relates to crypto. It's not crypto itself, but it's kind of like the strategy behind crypto. I don't think I'm ready to do that yet. Curious to hear what you think. I mean, having, you know, having Bitcoin now raise to, again, pass that $60,000 mark, it's like this, it's not going away. It's not going away. It's, 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 it's now the time with cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. It's either you accept it and adapt with it and everything that's behind it, or you fall behind and stay in the dark ages. It's like, it is crazy to see that, you know, we've been talking about this for over a year and it's like, I still don't understand it, but I own Ethereum. I own Dogecoin. I don't have Bitcoin yet, but it's like probably should consider it. It's like 
an ETF is going to be a steady, consistent five, six, seven percent year over year for Bitcoin. Um, I'd love to still hear more about it and understand. I still need to understand like the backings of everything, but you know, it's a probably a bold strategy that I think will benefit well for Bitcoin. So this one, I'm looking at the fact sheet of this Bitcoin strategy ETF, and it's the first U.S. Bitcoin linked ETF designed to provide investment results that correspond to the performance of Bitcoin. So this is not like, this isn't an ETF that has Bitcoin built into it, but they're investing in companies that basically like, you know, they have access to Bitcoin, you know, maybe their financial structure is Bitcoin. No, so. I mean, yeah, the ETF itself isn't backed by Bitcoin, but it will sure. succeed as bit, if and when Bitcoin does. It's basically a less risky version of Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what the ETFs are. And generally, um, you know, they're tracking a certain industry, they're tracking, you know, whether it's oil or gas or gaming, whatever, but Again, Bitcoin surged past sixty-two thousand. It's like it's on an, it's on for a uh, trying to aim for its all-time all-time high. Um, if the ETF follows those trends, I mean, that's that's for money. I think so, and maybe over as time goes on, maybe over these next couple of months, I'll reconsider. Um, but let's, let's ride the wave out. Let's see if it goes back down for me, and that's kind of where I'm I'm going to land on that. Um, sports betting. We talked about that to open the show. I feel like we've been doing that a lot lately. New Jersey has eclipsed over a billion dollars in wagers in a single month. The previous record was 966 million. And Will, it just goes to show, I mean, we talk about it every week. This is one that's like, what are you doing if you're not, if your state's not uh, considering sports betting? You look at the revenue from this year compared to last year as a nation, um, and specifically to New Jersey, we've got 40% increase uh, since uh, January 2021. So, I mean, that's like, that's some bonkers numbers. Tweeted this from the account the other day. It's like, you know, I think everyone knew it was going this way, but a billion dollars in a single month, that is some crazy shit. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, what, um, Jersey sports gambling just became a thing. It's not a new, this was not available all year, I don't believe. Or at least the sports book aspect. I think it's the book that they just got, because they could do like DraftKings and FanDuel and stuff before. Yeah, so the book itself is brand new. Yeah. Um, but either way, I mean, total gaming revenue for the month of September was like $453 million. Um, the NFL says that like the rise in sports wages is obviously the thing in Jersey, not only being home to two teams, but people can cross right across. People can, you know, come straight from New York. Um, Pennsylvania obviously has their own situation, but Maryland, Delaware, it's like, it's not a far drive. Um, not a far drive at all, but I don't, I don't doubt it whatsoever. Um, it was in 2018, Jersey won the Supreme Court case to legalize sports betting. Um, but it wasn't until up until this year that they released the book. Yeah, and that's huge because the, the revenue there is technically, it's also lumped in with like the, the racetracks and some of the casino betting too. So, I mean, Vegas had its biggest month 
ever, like Vegas gambling and the casinos as a whole this summer. Right. That was like the most they've ever brought in like revenue, gambling, collections, everything was over the summer. Um, people were definitely antsy just to spend some of that money that they've kept aside. And if your state does not have sports gambling, you're hitting the tables, the roulettes, uh, the slot machines, everything. But I mean, Jersey is definitely, uh, it's a small state, but I don't doubt it. I'd love to see the numbers of uh, Rhode Island, see what their earnings were. Yeah, I agree. Uh, River. I'm pretty sure it's uh, like public information. It should be. I mean, it's a, isn't Bally a publicly traded company? It is. Now we're going to come back to that because that's all right. So they say, okay, the company's current 2021 revenue guidance expects between 3 billion and 3.25 total for the year. So what's that? I can't do math. Um, I don't know what the monthly breakdown of that is, but um, quarterly sales yeah. of 314 million. Sounds about right. I mean, Rhode Island just like a fraction of the betters that that Jersey has. Yeah, a full a full financial year, full year of sales. Um, one analyst says that it could be up to one point three billion. Hmm. Anywhere from one point three to two point six. Sorry. No, there's a big that's, that's a big range. It's a lot of <laughs> yeah. That's there's a lot to go right and wrong in there. So I think, uh, you know, at the end of the year, we're probably gonna have a better picture of what twin river definitely does. Uh, and you know, how much sportsbook is brought in. I wonder what the kickback is for the state. It's probably a, a good chunk because yeah. you know, like exclusive rights that this is the only book in the state. And I mean, that's another thing too. It's like, when what gives like when do other books when can they start popping up right because a lot of the times you see the the state sponsored ones uh there's gonna be one in connecticut i guess soon um or sports betting online in connecticut now which is pretty cool but you know we're gonna see a lot of that state sponsored stuff still making money uh for the most part so that's sports betting, uh, not going away, only rising. Get in on it. Don't even have to bet. Just have to know it's there. Balls. Wild time in sports. We'll go rapid fire. Um, the last guest we had on was breaking down the Yankees wild card. And all of a sudden, the Yankees are no longer in the, the playoffs. It is the Red Sox who just massacred the Astros last night. And I'm sick to my stomach. Um and the Braves and Dodgers. And the Braves are actually getting out to pretty good start against 107 win Dodgers. Um, so, I, I mean, we can go predictions. We can go what surprised you. What's to make? We've got four teams left in the playoffs. Well, smells you know. like a Red Sox World Series. I, you it and smells I, smells like a Red this. Sox World Series. Uh, yep. Don't know where, what happened to the Astros. They kind of just fell asleep at the wheel. Uh, the fact that, the fact that I've walked in saying Yankees are going to beat the Red Sox, that didn't happen. The Rays were supposed to knock the door off the Red Sox. Complete opposite occurred. And the Astros were supposed to be the Astros. 0 for 3 right now. 0 for 3. Yeah. Red um, Sox are going to win. They are. Yeah. I think, they they, I think the Red Sox will win. It'll take a miracle for the Astros to come back. Um, and then you're, you're going to head over to the NL. Hey, I like the Braves right now. 
I'm rooting for the Braves as that underdog team. Uh, to be completely honest, I think Freddie Freeman, love to see him in pinstripes, but he's a staple for the Braves. Um, that Austin Riley kid, I mean, he was the nine-hole hitter last year for the for the Braves, and now he's becoming a hero. Um, if that World Series is an Austin Riley and Kike Hernandez uh, matchup, I mean, I don't know, but uh, rooting for the Braves. Unfortunately, I think the Red Sox will win it. Yeah, I'm right with you. Um, here's the thing. Don't count the Dodgers out, though, because I think this one's going no. to seven. Yeah. The Dodgers I, really do. I think either the Braves or Dodgers will do it in seven, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah. I just – man, I, I – But if the Braves – I mean, the only reason I, I said the Braves were – not because it's only 2-0, but if the Braves can take, put up two against the Dodgers right now, I don't think the um, – the Dodgers will hold well against the, the Red Sox. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the Red Sox, they just, like, against all odds, like, they had a shitty bullpen. The starters weren't that great. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. They defied all odds. So, all credit to them. I mean, Kyle Schwarber's been fucking ripping. So, um, yeah, buckle up there. We had – are the Bills the best team in the AFC on the agenda until they shit the bet against the Titans? So – just some football findings. Uh, you know, we had a conversation about this a couple of days ago, Will, but I mean, you know, top couple of teams in the AFC, the Ravens certainly look like they're back and ready to go. They're at five and one um, host of other teams at four and two. And then in the NFC, you know, the big players, you have to think the Packers are back. The Bucks are back. Um, the Cardinals are undefeated and somehow the Cowboys are five and one. This is mayhem in the NFL right now. A lot of different moving pieces right now. I don't know. I mean, we're already six weeks in. So you're going to start seeing like that gap splitting and who are buyers and who are sellers. I think the Chiefs have to be buyers at this point. Oh my God, they have They're to. just like wildly disappointment. I mean, you got to just fade them against the spread um, this season because like they're just not they're not getting it done i mean yeah they're winning some games but they're three and three you know i think the chargers can win that division easily and they'll have to sneak in as a wild card um but right now it's like you have your powerhouses you're looking at the afc it's like ravens right now the ravens might be that top team in the afc because that bills lost yesterday um i think the chargers are still up there i think the bills are still up there um, you can even say that the Raiders are, and you can even say that the Titans are, I don't know. It's definitely a crapshoot on that end. Uh, but over in the NFC, it's like you, you mentioned it. You already have the Cowboys that are five and one. I think your four teams in the NFC that are on a run. It's obviously the Cardinals, the Rams, the Cowboys, and the Bucks. Those are your Mount Rushmore, your final four of who do you think can make an actual run to this? Cardinals did just get Zach Ertz. That'll be interesting. Having a tight end, another weapon for Kyler Murray after they yeah, just took down the Browns. Good luck. It's huge. Good it luck. Is, it's huge stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on. I think the NFC either way is probably going to be the conference to beat this year. Um, but the Raiders roared over the Broncos in their first game without John Gruden too. John Gruden out due to the email scandals and, you know, between all the things he said, 
Is that a shock for you? I know I had the Broncos, um, and the Raiders just went out and kicked the shit out of the Broncos. Uh, so I, I was pretty shocked at that. I was very, yeah, I was very shocked. I was very shocked indeed. Um, I, I really thought that the the whole Gruden thing was going to be a distraction, but they played for the interim coach. They played for their foxhole guy, um, and the Raiders. I mean, granted, listen. The Broncos and the Raiders are not like great, great team. Or I'm sorry, the Broncos aren't a great team. Um, so like I I think I was just very bullish on hey, Broncos, they could take down the Raiders. It's all right, but Mark Davis magic, baby. <laughs> I wish he coached the team. I really did. But uh we're at we're going into week seven now. Let's get a pulse check. At this point, Will, who's gonna win the Super Bowl? Cardinals, you got to just go right now with the uh, undefeated team. I think you're right, but I was so pissed after the Pats game, so I put 15 bucks on the Cowboys to win. Um, it was a 12 plus 1200 odds, so that's a pays 180. Um, I just hope they win now. I really do. Yeah. Fuck everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, hockey and basketball are back. This is exciting. Um, I was really shocked by how well the, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights did the other night. And first of all, no one even knew it was ho- hockey opening night. So that's not great for yeah, me. No. Marketing. That was not good at all because I would have at least tried to watch it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, Vegas, Vegas started off hot, but the Kraken yeah. uh, held their own. I thought it was going to be a long night for Seattle after giving up two goals in the opening five, six minutes. Um, but Seattle held its own and they ended up getting their first win the day after, but, uh, hockey is back, you know, a couple, uh, interesting headlines to just follow through this season. It's like a lot of people are very, very strong on the Islanders. They're off to a slow start, but again, hockey, they're back to an 82 game slate this season. So a lot, a lot of puck to play. Um, Sidney Crosby still on the IR, a lot of, a lot of, uh, opening injuries for some big players, but he'll be fine to return. And then who knows about the Jack Eichel incident up at the, up in Buffalo with the Sabres, um, stripped of his captaincy. He, he's been injured for a while now. And like, there's been a lot of, there's been a big rift within, uh, if the doctors are right or they should trust him. He has a no, or the team is reluctant to trade him. He's not going to play either way. Um, it's a big mess up there, but when healthy and when playing, he's one of the top centers in the league. So definitely uh, some interesting stuff, but hockey is back. Eichel's kind of the face of the, the league now, 24 years old, and all eyes are on him. He was a BU guy. He was, um, you know, one of the prodigies coming up with Connor McDavid a couple of years ago. And it's like, now, now shit's getting interesting up in, uh, up in Buffalo. So, um, yeah, a lot of good stuff there. Um, college basketball pulls out too. AP top 25 Gonzaga's at the top. UCLA is number two, um, instant gut reaction. I think UCLA is ranked a little bit too high, but other than that, I mean, I, I'm, I'm liking what I see in this poll. I, I'm just so excited to, like, make that list like we did in the beginning of the year last year of just a bunch of shit that we think would hit and then have half of it hit after we parlay all of it. 
So. Yeah. I mean, Nova at four, pretty interesting. Yeah, um, that's about right. They, you yeah. know, it's taking a bet on Colin Gillespie being back, basically. Shaka Smartless, Texas at five. Interesting. Yeah, not shocked there either. Um, Illinois at 11. Okay. Uh, the one that like kind of like jumped at the page with me was UConn at 24. Yeah, that's a weird one. St. Bonaventure 23 too. <laughs> yeah. That's a little high for a, a mid-major to start off. A little, little high. Um, and they're going to have a nice program this year. They're going to be pretty good, but it's like 23 good over fucking Virginia and UConn. Like, come on. Yeah, I'm just looking at like other receiving votes. Belmont received seven. Yeah, I don't know. About Drake that. received four. Um, Xavier twenty two. Richmond, I, I'm I I think Richmond is a, a sleeper pick this year for uh, going to the dance. I really do. I Damn, really, really Richmond do. over the Bonnies for the A ten title. Yeah, I really do. I think they can upset them, but Bonaventure is a good team. I don't know, man. I think I think Davidson's got a shot to. I'm actually going to have to look into that and see what Sam Basil has to say. Uh, yeah, Fordham ranked number one on this list for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm so excited. This is like long overdue. We've got Bryant basketball playing next week. They've got an exhibition match. And then, we, you know, we just uh, – we it's full swing after that. So the college basketball season is knocking on the door. Big East Media Days today. Three-time guest Johnny Fanta is in Madison Square Garden um exciting stuff so that'll do it for our show today that was episode 65 um stick with us for more content blogs merch all that good stuff thanks for listening that's will and i'm jake so long folks take it easy mm-hmm.